It was funny yesterday. You know, I don't pay attention to when the full moon is. I don't look that up. I don't have a, a full moon calendar or anything that tells me. But yesterday I was running errands just in my part of town. My part of town. And uh, like this crackhead lady started following me. I was actually talking into my phone. I was recording an episode I didn't release. But this crackhead lady started following me and uh, like trying to get my attention. Like, and not, not following me, but like walking side by side with me, like five or ten feet away. Not like right next to me, but walking parallel to me. And I knew she didn't need my help or anything. You know, if she needed help, that'd be one thing. But it was just she was cracked out of her mind. And I started to notice, every, I went to the grocery store, everybody there was just out of their brains, crackheads, everything, just lunatics, regardless of whether drugs or not were, were a factor or not, like everybody I saw was a lunatic, and I, all I thought was, oh, tonight's one of those nights where the lunatics are out, and then I got home and I was like, you know what, I should look up and see if it's a full moon, and I did, and sure enough, it was, I felt redeemed. Like a few years ago, I was I was like lifting weights, just listening to Black Sabbath, and for some reason, I just I kept thinking about Geezer Butler. Kept thinking about old Geezer, and then I I'm not somebody who knows the birthdays of the the band members of, of Black Sabbath or anything like that. I don't know anybody's birthdays in bands and things, unless it's my birthday. Like unless their birthdays are the same as mine, and I remember it for some like self-referential reason i don't know when people's birthdays are but just like like i was listening to black sabbath i was thinking a lot about geezer butler for some reason i mean because i was listening to black sabbath but for whatever reason i was focused on just his existence and i thought to myself i was like i should check and see if it's geezer butler's birthday i know there was i didn't see anything there's no way i could have i could have you know come up with that and i looked it up sure enough it was Kind of the same thing with the full moon last night. But uh, it sure looks full to me still, but who knows. I mean, if I, if I, there's no place, there's no resource where I could look up when the full moon is, I wouldn't know the difference between those three days where it looks pretty much full. Something I was just thinking about, I touched a, a hot teapot. Dear diary, I touched a hot teapot. A hot teapot. Hottie pot. I touched a hottie pot. <laughs> hottie pot. Um, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't excruciatingly hot. It was like I touched a part of it that had cooled down a little, but it was still too hot to touch. And I immediately moved my finger. It didn't. It didn't leave a burn mark or it didn't. Didn't hurt me. But there was pain. But I, in the moment, I was just like, Oh yeah, I don't have to react to that. It wasn't, like, obviously, you could touch a part of a, a hottie pot, a hot teapot, that's so hot that, like, you, you have no choice but to react. Like, there's certainly hot teapots that you don't even have a choice if you touch them. It's going to be excruciating, and it's going to stay with you. But I was thinking about how we react to even what I did. Like, beyond the, that, that split second where I felt something really hot... It didn't stay with me, but how your my my gut instinct said like say ow, say ow, say ow, and and to act like it hurt me, 
And it, you know, it goes back, like, people notice that in babies, everyone's aware of the fact that, like, a baby, a baby will fall down or get bumped and act like nothing happened. But when the when their parents say, oh, my God, are you okay? The baby starts crying. And it trains the baby that if you fall down or bump up against something, you should cry. You should react. And that, that stays with you. Like People always associate it with babies for obvious reasons because that's like how you get trained into doing that. And, and certainly, like if a baby falls hard enough or bumps into something, like they'll cry from the pain. But how like a baby learns that even when it doesn't hurt or the hurt is momentary, you're still supposed to react to it because that's what you do when that happens because mom and dad react that way. And it's the same thing with the teapot, like that's, but that's within me. Like, You get trained to do that because of other people doing it, but then you kind of train yourself, that, oh, if I touch something really hot, even for a split second, and it leaves no lasting impact, I'm supposed to act like I'm hurt by it. But how you can, you can just decide not to do that. You can consciously decide not to do that. It's not even mind over matter. It's, just, it's mind over mind. But, uh... I don't know, you see people do that in all sorts of different ways in adulthood. I mean, I remember... I think the first time I became aware of this was a girlfriend I had a long time ago. Of course, it was a girlfriend. And uh, I think I accidentally bumped her. We were sitting on the couch, and I think I, like, I just, like, gently, like my elbow bumped into like the fleshy part of her arm, like an area of the arm that could not possibly have hurt. Like what I did is like, I bumped into her. It was like a clumsy moment, but it's something that could not possibly have actually hurt. And I remember she was like, ow. And, and not even as a joke. Like it, I didn't say anything and it didn't turn into anything more. But I remember thinking, oh yeah, that was her, that, that was a, that was what I'm talking about here. You know, that was, like her mind tricking her into thinking she had to react more to what was a minor thing and acting like, almost acting like it was personal. Like almost responding to it as if I meant to do it. Because of course, like if, even, if it, even if something doesn't really hurt, but somebody means to do it, like for example, if I had meant to elbow her arm, even if it felt the same exact way as me accidentally doing it, she would have had to. She would have had a right to react, because the owl would be like, "Why did you decide to do that to me?" Like if a total stranger came up to me and elbowed me, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> being me right now, but like in theory, I would react as if it hurt more than it did because you just did something crazy. But when it was an accident, it was just interesting that like her instinctive reaction was to treat it like either I meant to do it or it hurt more than it did or both. And I didn't think about that for years. I remember it was just a moment like sitting on the couch. I just remember thinking like that wasn't something that was that was like a trained response into thinking she had to do that or whatever probably a sign the relationship was going downhill when you start like overreacting to the mi the most minor things
But I thought about it again way later, like 15 years later when I got Batty. Because I realized, oh, like if I accidentally elbow Batty and it's not enough to hurt him, it's just like, it just like jostles him. Like let's say he's sitting next to me on the couch and I, and I don't realize he's there and my elbow like bumps his face. It's not like it's not pleasurable for him. It might even be uncomfortable for a second. But he, he somehow knows that it wasn't intentional and doesn't react. It didn't hurt him significantly. And he knows it wasn't intentional. So he's just like, oh yeah, you bumped me. But whereas like like even playfully of course don't <laughs> of course don't hit Batty. But like even if I kind of playfully like hit him, he knows it's intentional and he kinda he has a reaction. Either play because he and I like to do this little sparring thing that's play. Um, but he knows to react to that. He knows my intention. He knows in that case, like, what he's doing is he's playing with me. And he would know, like, it, if I accidentally elbowed him in the... Or if I elbowed him in the face the same, like, velocity, the same impact that I did when I did it on accident, but I did it deliberately, he would know that. And he'd be like, what the fuck? You hit me. But what's impressive about animals is they're like babies in the sense that they're not going to cry about it if it didn't truly hurt. But as adults, like we have it wired in us to react to that. Perform. Do it, you know, show a display. And I guess like my earliest memories of people doing that were guys pretending they got hit in the balls when they didn't. And that's what this, I think I've talked about this before, because this one has layers to it. The balls thing has layers, layers of balls. But, uh, like, I, I remember, like, playing sports and just, you know, I was a very active kid. And I noticed that, like, let's say, like, a ball, like, hit a boy in, like, the fleshy part of his inner thigh. Or, like, somewhere else on his groin. He would pretend like it hit him in the balls. And act like he was in this excruciating pain. And I think part of that was a way of saying, like, I have balls. I have balls. I have balls. I had balls. I think part of it is, like, it's like a way of saying, like, I got big balls. Or I got, I got balls. Or I got, I got a big uh, dicky, you know? It's a way of being, like, I have something there that's very vulnerable. It's almost like if you don't react to that, like if a ball hits you in the inner thigh and it just hurts, but it's not getting hit in the balls. As a, as a boy, there's like something in you that makes you think you need to act like it was worse than it was to prove that you have something there. And I knew that's what people were doing. I think I even did it. I think I can, I could probably pull up some long buried memory of myself doing that. I know I did it. But I was also aware of the fact that this is something performative. This isn't like, I remember actually like being like, uh, like playing a sport and seeing a ball like bounce up off the ground into a guy's crotch area who was standing next to me and like seeing it where it hit him and then him clutching his balls and like laying on the ground being like, oh dude, hit me in the ball, hit me in the ball. And uh, being like, oh, it didn't, it didn't hit him in the balls, though. It didn't come anywhere close. 
but because it, it it had just the slightest appearance of that he's he's saying to all of us like oh that part of me is vulnerable and uh it hurts to get hit there because i've got something there i got something there so that's kind of the same thing and like it's not like some it's not toxic masculinity that's not like there was never any training that's more of a monkey see monkey do thing like boys see other boys react that way it's not like their dads or the older men are like you know if you ever get hit in the balls like or if you ever get hit in the thigh pretend like it's your balls or people will think you're gay you know it's like nobody teaches you that nobody instructs you to do that it's something that just kind of passes from peer to peer we're like oh i'm supposed to react that way but it, but it's the same thing i'm talking about with you know touching something hot getting accidentally nudged a parent reacting to their baby falling down it's this like training that you kind of take on and it's just interesting i don't have anything else to add on it but just me touching the the teapot before i left got me thinking about all that touching the hottie pot I, what i was thinking about be- before i touched the hottie pot it's like ad and bc before i touched the hottie pot and uh after after what i was gonna say is uh i was thinking about placeholder terms this is a recurring subject on here you know and i've often brought it up in spiritual terms religious terms where god is the most obvious one like some people who believe in god are really attached to the word god in part because the bible says in the beginning there was the word and the word was god but they assign a lot of meaning to that like in the same way that like there's people out there probably a lot of them who don't realize that allah means god like they think because the name is different that they're referring to something else and this isn't me trying to get all you know this is the opposite of pantheistic the idea is though like because they use a different word in a different language it means something else And God is one that's one of the placeholder words that gets a lot of reaction out of people. People who believe in like I was saying, people who believe in God sometimes are, are so attached to that word that I, I have a hard time but believing that they believe in God. Because how could you truly believe in God if you think that it requires that one little word? It's a good word. Once I, I once I became comfortable with the word God, it made my life a lot easier. I'm not even talking about believing in God. I'm just saying once I got comfortable with the word God, my life actually got easier. <laughs> um hottie pot God. Uh and uh you know that's that's the example I always use those words like God, words like love. I mean love is another example of that. Like I sometimes don't want to say the word love because I think too much about the word itself. A lot of people feel that way. 
my life has gotten easier since I've gotten a little more comfortable with the word love. I'm not totally comfortable with it. I'm a, I never had trouble telling people I loved that I love them. But it's like when I hear the word love, I think of greeting card, Valentine's Day hearts. I think of the abstract representation of the human heart that's this weird shape we see everywhere. Which is, is very spiritual. Like the fact that, you know, the people have given hearts this abstract shape. This this V with a couple little bumps on top, a V with Mickey Mouse ears on the top. That we see that and we immediately know what it means and corresponds to. But we don't even actually question that symbol. Like, yeah, there's always that wise guy who's like, the heart symbol doesn't even look like a human heart. But it's true, and it's kind of strange to think about the fact that, like, we all treat that like it's completely normal. We're just like, yeah, that's a heart. It means love. When it's just some symbol that somebody came up with. It was some representation of the heart. And we just ran with it. But because of that, like, I... That's one of my aversions to the word love. Not the idea of love, but it's one of my aversions to the actual word love is that it's represented the way it is. But then realizing that, well, that's that's just a placeholder. All that shit's just a placeholder. That has nothing to do with what love is. It has nothing to do even with the word love. It's just that it gives you this visual impression when you think it. You know, you could think of like... I mean, so much, so much of how we feel about things comes from those impressions, those visual impressions. I said that about Buddhism way back when, like I, I felt that way about Buddhism, where it was like, oh, because the word Buddhism brings to mind a certain type of person, or for that matter, like sayings, there, there are cliches and, and sayings and things that are very real and true and valuable and things you should take to heart. But I was averse to them for so long because they made me think of the type of person I heard saying them. And sometimes that's a reason not to say them. But still, I kind of let that cloud my vision. Where I was like, oh shit, like, because I associate that idea with the people I've heard say it, I'm ignoring the actual idea. But, you know, going away from the positive placeholders, what we call positive placeholders, which to me are those things, they don't have to be positive like God and love and, I mean, even the universe. I mean, that's a placeholder word. People talk about the universe like it's this ultra-scientific term for something that's beyond our comprehension. And the people who think they have any understanding of the universe, I mean, maybe not them, but like people who arrogantly think they understand what the universe even is, not, not how it works, but what it is, their understanding of it is based on these telescopes that map out glimpses of its, its physical appearance, of which we have no idea, we have, we have no concept, you know? 
But people do think they, like when you say the universe, that's less controversial than God. God's very controversial. That placeholder word, you can't even use it with some people. You can't even use it. If you use it, they immediately think you're saying something other than what you are. They associate that with something. In the same way I associate certain cliches with certain people, and that's caused me to ignore the value of that cliché, there are people who will not even, they'll plug their ears the whole rest of a conversation if someone invokes the word God. Because they associate it with something. And some people will do that about the universe. Like, I, I've listened to conversations, podcasts, where someone's like, what do you even mean, trust the universe? But in general, like, people think of space. People have a very material view of what uh, the universe is. Oh, it's space. It's basically like the totality of space that we can see, and as well as the, the endless amount of space we can't see. But it's inherently spiritual. Like, no matter how scientific you want to get about the universe, it's an inherently spiritual idea. And that's just a word we have for something that's truly beyond our comprehension and we don't understand. It just doesn't get as much flack as other words. I was thinking earlier about... I was thinking about some of the... Here's the politics, but... I was thinking about, like, some of the... Some of the topics that are, you know, so hot these days. You know, I went to a very left liberal arts college, like one of the most extreme far left liberal arts colleges in the world, in the country for sure. And of course, topics like, you know, race and uh, sex came up regularly. There was no avoiding those there. But I was thinking about my particular experience, which was when George W. Bush was in office. That's when I was in college. And a lot of, like, the, the uh, what do you call it, like, a lot of the posturing that both the faculty did as well as the students was anti-religious. It was anti-Christian, first and foremost. A lot of that was in response to the political evangelism of the era and Bush being in office. But it wasn't just that. It was, it was also, it was something that seemed kind of newer. Like, for example, we had a class where, um, I took one science class and this, and it wasn't that one. This was a humanities class of some kind. And in the class, like one day they showed us this documentary about intelligent design, but the teachers who showed it, as well as the students watching it, did so mockingly. Like, th they were showing it to the class so that we could all mock it together. And it was in that, like, daily show sort of style. Was, like, those old daily show interviews where they'll, like, interview a Republican and edit it to make them look like the biggest idiot in the world. Because in this intelligent design documentary... They, they were talking to a guy, I don't know if he was a pastor or who he was, but he was saying, you know, proof of intelligent design is that a banana fits a human hand. He was like, he, he showed how like the curve and size of a banana, you know, fit the human hand perfectly, which is proof that 
you know, God designed that or something designed that intelligently, deliberately. And it, but it was heavily mocked. Like everyone in the class mocked that. I think the documentary itself was mocking it. Because I think the documentary was made by people who are looking to ridicule intelligent design. And uh, I don't know. That's sure that's easy to laugh at, but it's like I remember. I remember kind of thinking it was stupid at the time, like the banana thing. I remember thinking, "Oh, that guy's stupid. He thinks that proof of intelligent design is that." Like I, I was never anti-spiritual. Uh, I was never atheist. I was never anything like that. But I was a different person for sure. And I do remember like having sort of a mocking response to that like he thinks that a banana fitting in a human hand is proof of something and like thinking about that today i'm just like huh it is kind of interesting that a banana fits a human hand it's some it has potassium which we need and you think of like individual creatures evolving based on their needs but it almost does seem like bananas which offer this necessary what do you call that? Vi vitamin, uh, what is that called? Potassiums and electrolyte. We, we need electrolytes or we get sick. And in nature, you know, there's not a lot of sources of electrolytes. And this one major source, this major source of potassium in nature, it didn't just evolve for its own defense. It, it evolved in a way that makes it really easy for other creatures to access its nutrients. You know, it evolved in a way that makes it easy to peel so that you can eat and digestible, the body can handle it. Plus, it fits in a human hand. That's pretty crazy. I don't know why. I don't know why all that came to be. But I don't think it's stupid to think there's something to it. Even if it's, if it's always going to be just beyond the curve of our understanding, I don't think it's stupid to, th to think that. And uh, I don't know, you know, it was an era of like, it was before a lot of people were online all the time. So the sort of internet atheist types weren't really, they were around, but it was like, my college wasn't full of them. These were just like young liberals who were questioning religion and faculty who, who promoted it, which is whatever. I won't even get into that, but it was just... Uh, I, I, when I look back, I'm like, a lot of the focus was, was anti-Christian in nature. It, it was even less on, like, the racism and sexism and things like that that were big topics. But I was like, oh, yeah, that was a very anti-Christian period. That was a lot of the focus. And it's funny, too, because it, it was always evolution versus creationism. You know, it was always focused on evolution versus Christianity, for that matter. And uh, you know, it's a weird dynamic, like to pit those things against each other. And with uh, it's just because they, they don't they don't address the same issues. And I, if I remember right, I never really looked into it that deeply. But if I remember right, intelligent design was a way of saying, "Oh, we believe in evolution, but evolution takes place." Like kind of based on some sort of higher power directing it or setting it in motion. 
So it was sort of a reconciliation. Like Christians who are saying, like, we sure, we, we believe in evolution, but it doesn't, that actually isn't inconsistent with our views that there is something that was set in motion by something. And even though they might say, oh, it was God, it was, it was this very specific entity named God, and don't you dare call it Allah or anything else. Don't you dare call it the universe. Well, they might have their own limited view. I don't disagree with that. And to me, it, it, it is a good reconciliation of these things. Because personally, like, I, I believe in evolution, of course. But it's weird because evolution is a process. And the world is full of processes. And knowing that there is a process like evolution in which creatures adapt and change and mutate for various reasons that to me isn't at odds with with spirituality and it's strange to me that they would even be pitted against each other because the arrogance of evolution enthusiasts comes comes not through the belief in evolution it comes to the belief that they know what set this in motion, which many of them wouldn't claim to know, but they think they can disclude things as well. Like the process of evolution, I don't think it's stupid to think, well, what set this in motion? It addresses, spirituality addresses different questions. Spirituality shouldn't, um, spirituality shouldn't question, it, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be used to deny observable processes like the evolutionary process, but it fits around it. And it, it works with, with it. Because, because even if you map all of this out, even if you understand how individual creatures work inside and how they respond and change over time and place and based on various environmental factors, it doesn't get at the very heart of existence itself. Like if you want to say that, you know, life began as water bacteria, water bacteria that over a long span of time turned into this diverse, lush world of different categories of creature and plant and everything else. Like, if you want to view the history of our natural Earth that way, it still doesn't get at the heart of, like, why? How? What set this in motion? And that's where religion and spirituality are, are offer us placeholders and and limited but but not limited but not um, I don't know limited but not limiting ways to kind of understand that. And people who say, like, oh, well, that happened because God willed it. God willed lizards to develop wings based on this. 
or he at least allowed that. Oh, God willed that person, God allowed that person to do X, Y, or Z to you. You know, you, re religion can, you know, religion doesn't necessarily say that's the reason. That it was God's direct orders. But it, it can acknowledge that God created the capacity for this to happen. But you can't let God be too limiting and limited either. And if you think you're going to come out on... That's the thing. There's a lot of people out there who think they're going to know. They, they think that they're going to come closer to the source of it all than the previous generations. Instead of accepting that all of this is just... You know, all, all of this is just such a tiny view into things and always will be until you die and maybe after you die. That, you know, at what point are you so arrogant that you believe you're closer to the source than anybody else? And just because you have a set of placeholder words and ideas, placeholder ideas for that matter, because the ideas can be placeholders too, you know, even if you have that, you still have to accept the reality that that's just, that's just a tool for understanding or coping with your limited experience and view of this whole thing. But something I haven't talked about on here much is negative placeholders. You know, negative placeholders are something as well. And what got me thinking about this is I've been on a true crime kick for a little while now. After years of being away from it, I've taken more of an interest in these cold cases that are popular at any given time. I've even dabbled back into some serial killer stuff. Like, I've watched a few documentaries about serial killers. Like, since having access to Netflix for the time being, I've watched a, a few serial killer documentaries. They're good for the most part. I think they're well done. But a few of these documentaries on Netflix right now, like one of them is, uh, includes excerpts from Ted Bundy's prison interview, interviews. There's one based on these interviews Dahmer did. There's another that includes interview excerpts from Gacy. And that's the best stuff. It's always best to hear these guys talk. But unfortunately, the docu like I, I would rather just watch that. I'm so sick of productions. They, they really feel so outdated. Like, there was a time and place where you'd watch a documentary about a serial killer and listen to this narrator's fake fucking voice and, like, think the editing is cool. But, you know, before I, I kind of took a break from serial killers and all that, I was just looking for the raw footage of these interviews. I don't need to have it put into a production. I'm just interested in the full, unedited interview of what they're saying. And so these documentaries should have just been that, really. Like, yeah, it was cool they talked to certain people, but there wasn't enough of the excerpts. Like, I've heard them all before, but still, I was like, this would be a lot better if they had long, un uninterrupted segments of the actual interview with the killer. Especially guys who were very forthcoming in their own way, like those three. 
But something, you know, this got me thinking too about how BTK, he used the term minotaur. When he, when he referred to like what he was, because people mock him, you know, for the way he got caught and everything. But in my opinion, BTK is one of the most insightful serial killers based on what he said. He knows exactly what he was. He, he developed the idea of compartmentalization without even knowing what that meant. Like if you watch interviews with BTK or read things he's written, he's like, yeah, I discovered this thing called cubing. You know, basically, cubing was a way to, like, isolate different parts of his personality into different roles. And a lot of serial killers do this for obvious reasons. The ones who aren't, like, frothing out-of-control maniacs, the guys who actually do live double or triple lives, all of them are, you know, they live these very compartmentalized lives. Where, you know, like, the killer within is this distinct personality it's very dominant, but it's this distinct personality that is separate from the other parts of them. And so, you know, BTK being like, I discovered this thing called cubing. <laughs> you know, we, it's just like, you rediscover the same things other people do, and that just shows you that these are placeholders too. Like, the idea that he thought of it as cubing, which is a pretty close match for compartmentalization, but he, he kind of realized that on his own because he had these crazy conflicting roles that he played one where he fully identified as the monster or villain and almost saw himself as like being destined for that like almost like he was willed like like if you he, he doesn't say that it this explicitly but if you if you read some of the, and, and hear some of the things btk said it's clear that he feels like certain people are born to be this at any given time like, like someone is meant to be the bad guy or villain in, a, in, the, in the story in which you live in. And he saw himself that way from an early age. But because that was one role and he had this other role where he had a family and was a dad, it's like he realized that like those had to be separate or it just happened that way. And he was like, oh, it's cubing. Cubing is how I kind of like you know, live these different lives. And it was just like, oh, he just, he discovered compartmentalization. He just found his own word for it, which it turns out actually works. But going back to like him saying like, well, I, I, I'm a minotaur. And he was like, you know, when I was growing up, like I started to hear about other minotaurs, which is to say like serial killers and villains. And the minotaur, you know, yeah, it's like a, you know, a, a bull man who torments people, and like, he didn't mean that literally, obviously. But he sees people like him, people who are born into that role as minotaurs. It's kind of how he understood it. What's interesting about him, too, is like, his early fantasies involve things like, I think he said like, his first time that he really like, realized what he was into, was he was watching, like, it might have been like a, a Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon. It was something like that, where it had a cartoon girl tied to the railroad tracks, like the classic villain, like, I have the damsel tied to the railroad tracks. Like, he saw like that in a cartoon when he was a kid and was, like, so just stimulated by it that he, like, he, he realized that 
as he got older, it's like he just gravitated toward that. But his early fantasies like involved him being this almost cartoon villain where he like envisioned himself having this like mansion or castle with an elevator in it that would take you to different torture rooms. Like he really, it wasn't like, like while he had these deep perversions that were developing in relation to all this, it's not like that's how he envisioned it. He didn't envision himself as, as just like, oh, like, I, I, I'm, I'm a pervert who's, who has to satisfy myself in bizarre ways, huh? I, I'm going to go kill these people. It, instead, it was like he had this grandiose vision of himself. He's a minotaur. He's the minotaur tormenting people in the maze. He's just a cartoon villain tying women to railroad tracks. He's the, the evil noble living in, in the mansion castle with an elevator, like almost like a mad scientist or something. And that's an interesting thing, because like, Dahmer did that as well, where Dahmer... Dahmer's favorite movie characters. The see, the see, because there's been all this Dahmer stuff. Like people are learning all the, all the obscure stuff now, which is good. But I used to, I used to tell people this, and they'd be like, "Huh, I've never heard that." Um, this is just me being like, I knew this before everybody. But uh, the, his favorite movie characters were Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, and then like the demon from The Exorcist Three. And I remember years ago hearing the Emperor Palpatine thing and being like, holy shit, like, as a kid watching Star Wars obsessively, Darth Vader's obviously cool, even though he's a bad guy. People love Boba Fett, even though he's a bad guy. But somehow those are cool bad guys. Maybe the way they look, maybe the way they carry themselves. You wouldn't think anything about your friend if he was like, oh, dude, I love Darth Vader. But I never met a single fucking kid who thought Emperor Palpatine was the coolest character. <laughs> you know, there was never a kid. I, I didn't even know that was an option. When I heard the Dahmer thing, I was like, I didn't even know it was an option to be an Emperor Palpatine fan. Bunch of other cool bad guys, yes, but him, I didn't even know that was an option. Because he, you know, it's not just that he's the, he's the epitome of evil. Like, obviously, in Star Wars, good, good Star Wars analysis here, but in Star Wars, like, Darth Vader's whole thing is he's still a little bit redeemable at the end. And you know how he, how he turned bad. Like, even before they, like, over-explained and ruined that shit in the prequels, like, they, they say throughout Star Wars that, like, Vader had once been a good man... And then the end is finding out that he still has a little good left in him. Even without that, like, even without the Emperor being, like, the total bad guy, there's just nothing to like. You know, there's nothing to be into. So for someone like Dahmer to be into him or to be into the ugly demon from The Exorcist 3, like, that just means, like, oh, yeah, he identified with the bad guy. To me, it's no different than the guys BTK liked. And BTK is self, was self-aware, is self-aware enough to kind of realize, oh, like, I'm the villain. Because that's not always a given. Like, some of these guys do get off on the fact that they are in the role of the villain. But a lot of them, too, have, think they're the hero. 
Like, if you've heard what some killers and just bad people in general say, like, like Ted Kaczynski, like, he's not a serial killer in the same sense. He's more of a terrorist who just picked very questionable targets, as I guess any terrorist does. But Ted Kaczynski, you know, he was self-righteous. Like, he had a cause. He, he considered himself a hero. You know, he knew he was doing bad things, but it's like it was caught up in this self-righteousness. You even see that with true serial killers, too. Like that guy who killed that whole family in Idaho 15 years ago and did horrible things to the kids, kidnapped them. Turns out he killed other kids in, earlier and things. You know, he, uh, he had a blog that was just crazy. I think it's still online. But he, he had it before he got arrested. And he didn't talk about killings, but he just talked about like his spiritual struggles. And then from prison, he had somebody updating the blog for him. And he actually went into his murders. Like at that point, he's already on death row. So it's like he just admitted everything and wrote these blog narratives that are very dark and fucked up. But they're the truth, at least from his point of view. And uh, it's a Star Wars quote from, from a certain point of view. A lot of Star Wars here. But you can tell in that guy's narrative, like when, when he explains his life, even though he knows he's doing horrible things and saw it as like the devil influencing him and things like that, he, uh, he has this whole like kind of martyr hero complex within that. He's a child rapist and a child killer, killed a whole family in, in one house. Horrible, you know? It's, but it's like still somehow in his story, he kind of sees himself as the hero. He feels like the prison, the prison system ruined him at a young age, and he's striking back at society for what, what happened to him in prison. Even though he was in prison at a young age for raping a guy at gunpoint, he still sees what happened to him as prison, as society's fault. And so by killing children and killing people, he saw it as like, oh, I'm the hero rebelling against a corrupt society. And a bunch of them have that. You know, not all of them just say like, oh, I'm the villain. I'm the bad guy. Some of them actually do think that they're in the right. I'm more interested in the ones who think that they're the villain. I find that far more interesting. And uh, the Minotaur thing is what got me going on this, though, because it's obviously a placeholder term. You know, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, he didn't actually think, oh, I'm, I'm half man, half bull. Oh, Ted Bundy's half man, half bull. These other Minotaurs that exist, because he, he made reference to the other Minotaurs. That's his placeholder word. Just like cubing is his placeholder word for our placeholder word. It's not, that, it's not that cubing is a placeholder word for the real word, compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is a fucking placeholder word. So cubing is a placeholder for another placeholder. Minotaur too. You know, that's his own placeholder. But our terms are no no more real than that. You know, our terms aren't really any better. And I, I've thought before about like, the idea of the boogeyman. 
You know, that was kind of... I think boogeyman is a really good... Even though it's a really silly word. Boogeyman's a really silly word. Wish somebody was around to hear that. Uh, you know, there's something really creepy about it. The boogeyman. And it's kind of this catch-all. Like, like, by the time I was a kid, you only ever heard it in jest. Like, like sometimes my mom would say, Oh, better... Better come inside or the boogeyman's gonna get you. I only ever heard it in Jess. But that idea means something. Like the idea of the boogeyman, it's like if you do, if you don't do the right things, you know, there are people out there who will get you. And some of them are the boogeyman. <laughs> you know, like if you're a little kid and you're playing outside and your mom's like, oh, better come inside before the boogeyman gets you. The reality is, there is a fucking boogeyman, and it's statistically improbable that he gets you. Still, the way that he gets you is because you don't do what your mom says, or you're not safe. And just in general, like, if you don't do the, if you don't take precaution, like, yeah, like, parents will use it to manipulate kids. Like, oh, if you don't do your homework, the boogeyman's going to get you. And no, like, a child molester isn't going to abduct you and molest you because you didn't do your homework. But he is going to, like, get you when you're vulnerable or not doing what you're supposed to do. And yeah, they'll get people who are, are doing what they're supposed to do. These people are insane predators. But oftentimes, the boogeyman does get you when you fuck up. The boogeyman's so scary, he'll get you even when you do everything perfectly. It's just fate wasn't on your side. But the boogeyman can really easily get you if you fuck up. Lock your doors or the boogeyman will come inside. Well, yeah, lock your doors or bad people will have an easier time doing something to you. So that idea, it's not crazy at all. And that was actually, you know, I, I've said this before, but like when I kind of closed the book on my years of true crime study, you know, my years of like obsessively reading books and anything I could about serial killers, when I kind of closed that, when I was done with it, and even though I've, I've, I still revisit it, I'm, I've been watching stuff lately, there's a book I'm going to read, even though I still have a, a kind of a fleeting interest in it and it still comes to mind. One of the reasons I kind of closed the book on that stuff, I've said before, it was because I realized, oh yeah, evil's just real. It used to be like, oh, I'm going to try to understand these guys psychologically. I'm going to understand, like, what's unique about different serial killers, what's similar. I'm going to try to understand what these guys are, because it's fascinating. And after all that work, it's like the midwit thing. It's like the midwit meme that I always bring up these days. The one meme I always bring up of like the dumb guy saying like it's it's a meme where it's like a it's like a like a, like a call it like a bell graph it's like a chart it's like a, a graph showing like the dis the distribution of intelligence and it has like a like a neanderthal on the far left a guy with glasses in the middle and then a guy in a cloak on the far right if you've seen this meme you know exactly what I'm talking about but, like, the dumb guy, the Neanderthal, like, 
whatever the topic of the given meme is, the, the Neanderthal is just like going like, huh, huh. serial killers exist because evil is real. Something that like a lot of people would be like, well, what does that mean? And the guy in the middle with the glasses who represents average intelligence, he has some elaborate explanation. Well, like serial killers are, they exist because like in the evolutionary process, like some, some people go haywire and they, their hunting instinct goes haywire and gets like combined with their, their psychosexual impulses. And that's why serial killers exist. And then like the sage with the cloak, He's saying exactly the same thing the dumb guy's saying. Serial killers exist because evil is real. That was kind of my route. Where it's like I started out as a kid just being like, oh yeah, like serial killers are intriguing, but they're just evil. And then I went through this long road of like reading about them being like, well, the human experience is complex. And like, you know, what makes these guys tick is this, this, and this. And then at the end of my journey studying this stuff I was just back to like oh yeah evil's real <laughs> you know and uh, um, it, it's kind of the same with like the word boogeyman it's like oh the boogeyman it's some like childish nonsense word that parents use to scare children into doing what they want and then you know you you, you know you end up like going back to like what the dumb guy thinks. It's just like, oh no, these people. There's there's actual just real people who are the boogeyman. <laughs> you know, like all these people who are who are predators, and we have these these psychological terms for these these classifications. What you end up with is just, oh no, that guy was the boogeyman all along. Easy, very easy. And why, why are parents, like, warning the kid to, like, do the right thing? Yeah, like, like, parents will manipulate kids and ask them, you know, they'll think, like, what's right for the kid is, like, not what's actually right and proper for them, this and that. But it's, like, what a parent is actually trying to tell their kids when they warn them about the boogeyman is just, like, don't make yourself any more vulnerable than you have to be. The boogeyman is real. He's an opportunist. And when you don't do what you're supposed to do, you make yourself more vulnerable to the boogeyman. The boogeyman, 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 the boogeyman. No, but it's it's true though. It's like it's why like when when there is one of these cases, and you find out that like oh they they didn't lock their door, you don't blame them for that, but a, a part of you like. The intellectual part of your brain says, well, like, this might not have happened if they did lock their door. Oh, hey, make sure, like, you teach your kid, hey, don't don't leave the door unlocked or else the boogeyman will get in. Well, that's the absolute truth. Doesn't mean he's going to get in every time you leave it unlocked. You might find a way in otherwise. But you do make yourself far more susceptible to the boogeyman under his many names. So it's not bullshit. It's the absolute truth. <laughs> when, par when parents invoke the boogeyman. I mean, some, some people's parents are the boogeyman. Some people live with the boogeyman. I've said this before about demons and... Uh, you know, even even just like... I've said this before about like modern psychological terms. Like we're really attached to these modern diagnoses. 
Oh, she's bipolar. She's bipolar. She's got a case of bipolar. Oh, he's schizophrenic. She's this. He's this. And we think that that's somehow closer to the truth. It's, it's a, a good tool. It's an effective tool to have those terms. Because if you tell somebody, oh, he's schizophrenic, they have a general idea what that means, if not an exact idea. Oh, expect this expect these kinds of behaviors from that person. Maybe we can help this person because they're part of a larger pattern. There are people out there who exhibit this behavior. We have a name for it. That makes it it's useful to have a name for it. But is that is that word any more real? Schizophrenia doesn't need the word schizophrenic to exist. To exist. Schizophrenia doesn't need the word schizophrenic to exist. But it's true, though. Like, uh, you know, they're just placeholders. And, uh, you know, that's the thing, though. It's like, you know, whatever, whatever era you live in, whatever time you live in, you know, you kind of come to think of, like, the, the terms and words that are commonly used during your time as uh, so I said, a moment, a very self-conscious moment, like when I just did that voice. I just realized there was somebody like walking their dog like toward me right up ahead. And like, I'm just like, fuck. It's bad enough just to be yapping into my phone, but a voice like that subjecting a random, especially like talking about schizophrenia. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, you know, it's very easy to get attached to like the terms of your time. And be like, oh, because we use the words, you know, schizophrenia to refer to a certain type of behavior now, that's the true word for it. It's not just some placeholder tool. And then we look down on, like, previous ways of understanding that. Like, seeing schizophrenic behavior 500 years ago and saying, oh, hey, they're possessed by a demon isn't wrong. Because demonic possession was the way we understood that at the time. It might not have been as clinical. It might not have been as effective of a way of dealing with it as we, what we have now in, you know, psychiatric medicine and all that. But it was still a way of describing the same thing. You know, if you if someone was exhibiting schizophrenic behavior, full-on paranoid schizophrenic behavior, in the Middle Ages. I don't know when it spread. I know it comes from Ireland, interestingly. Schizophrenia is it, it, it actually comes from Ireland originally. So there was somebody there. I don't know when it spread around the world, but there was somebody in Ireland in the Middle Ages, probably in every town. I mean, if it comes from Ireland, it must occur there at a higher rate. They must have had a schizophrenic in every town in middle medieval Ireland. They probably still have one in every town. I mean, to, to be fair, we got one in every town here, but <laughs> back then, you know, how would you interpret that person? Like, babbling incoherently, um, behaving dangerously, recklessly. You know, it's not one size fits all. It's not all, you know, like our movie understanding of what schizophrenia is but still it's a certain pattern of behaviors that many people share and I think the best interpretation you would have of it at the time is oh they're possessed by a demon it would sure seem like it 
And I don't think that would be an unintelligent thought. I don't think that's an unintelligent thought today. It might not be as useful as some sort of psychiatric process. It might not be as useful as calling it schizophrenia, giving them a certain medication, a certain kind of treatment. But I don't think it's any less accurate. You know, I don't think it's any less accurate at all. And it's it's because these are the placeholders of our given time. And they, so it's obviously something I think about a lot where, you know, because it's, it's very easy to get attached to the word itself. But uh, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's something that comes up a lot. And I know from myself, like how easy it is for me to become a little too attached to these words. Even though I'm a broken record and I'm always saying like, oh, these are all placeholders. Everything's a placeholder word, you know. And it gets annoying to say that because it's, it's pointing out the obvious even though I know that, even though I know these are all placeholders for good, bad things, everything in between, for, for things that are, you know, too big for us to understand, even though I'm constantly reminding myself of that, I still get attached to the word itself. And, and to be fair, some words really fit the thing they're describing. There are some words that are a great fit. <laughs> Where, like, the, the language itself kind of embodies what it's describing. That's a real thing, too. But I, th I think what it is, it's not even that. Yeah, like some words really embody the thing they're describing. And I, I kind of like, I, I love language. So it's not like I'm trying to say like, oh, all language is just bullshit. It's just don't get too attached. Like, like not, not just don't get too attached to the language. Don't associate the language too much with the idea. Like, don't, don't get too attached to the idea requiring that word or language. If you believe in God, that shouldn't depend on the word God. Even though God is one of those words, it's a good fit. God's a great word for what it, it describes. But that shouldn't be the basis of your definition. And it applies to everything down the board. Yeah.